Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Aaron Chapman. Aaron's book, Vancouver After Dark, was the winner of the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. If you're not familiar with Aaron, Aaron is a writer, historian, and musician with special interests in Vancouver's entertainment history. He is the author of The Last Gang in Town, the story of Vancouver's Clark Park Gang, Liquor, Lust, and the Law, the story of Vancouver's Penthouse Nightclub, and Live at the Commodore, a history of the Commodore Ballroom that also won the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award in 2015. In 2020, he was elected as a member of the Royal Historical Society, and he lives in Vancouver. Now, I'm warning you, if you haven't read Vancouver After Dark, you might get a little nostalgic for the old times. And for me, the old times aren't that long ago. For others, it might be a little bit further back. But it is a great step back into history. The photos are fantastic. And the sources and interviews, the characters he finds, bring the story to life. Aaron starts our interview with a reading from Vancouver After Dark. This section is from Vancouver After Dark about an old nightclub that used to be on Gramble Street, kind of right across the street from the Hudson's Bay building. It was called the Barolina Cabaret, and it's not necessarily a, a landmark institution of uh, Vancouver entertainment. Um, there were lots of local acts that, that came through there, but one of the interesting things that I happened in the course of doing research for the book was hearing from so many different sources of maybe about some places that weren't on the, the map, of the big places that were in town. The Barolina was one of them. In fact, the... Inclusion of the barrel largely comes from Tommy Chong. Yes, I'm teaching Chong fame. Tommy Chong, that very same Tommy Chong, who, uh, when I did an interview with him, who was a great sort of resource for Vancouver nightclub history, because Cheech and Chong started here in Vancouver on an old nightclub that was down on Main Street. The act first got together here, and the biggest comedy duo sensation in the 1970s was born right here in Vancouver. Tommy had a great memory as a playing in bands for many years in Vancouver about some of the places off the beaten track. And he mentioned to me the Barolina Cabaret and told me a little story about it, which sort of sprung sort of this, the idea of the research. And, and it's largely Tommy's suggestion of it that, that it finds its way into the book. So thank you, Tommy. And, uh, and Cheech, while we're at it, Cheech was, uh, has lots of great Vancouver stories, too, when I talked to him. But uh, so this is a little excerpt on, on the Barolina Cabaret that I'll read out to you. Many stories about post-war Vancouver nightclubs include references to the police's dry squad liquor raids, and the city's restrictive liquor licensing bylaws. But they were not the only obstacles that nightclub owners had to contend with. Sometimes they would have to deal with shadowy and unsavory characters who had agendas of their own. By the early 1960s, owners of the Barolina Cabaret were faced with two such characters, the notorious Gardner Brothers. The Barolina was located just across the street from Hudson's Bay Department Store at 641 Granville Street. The cabaret space had originally been the John Goss Studio Theater and later the Goss Auditorium in the 1940s, before the name uh, changed to Empire Hall in the 1950s. Then on December 8, 1962, an urbane a German-Canadian couple, pardon me, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Heinz Roloff advertisements encouraged Vancouverites to come enjoy the continental atmosphere with Canadian and German cuisine. By all accounts, the Roloff's intent was to run a civilized establishment for sophisticated people with a discerning taste. Dress code deemed that gentlemen could only enter if they were wearing a suit and tie. 
The club even found its own tassiographer, which is a big name for a fortune teller, who would read tea leaves. Berlina was a dine and dance establishment that rendered featured, featured local music, musical talent, such as the Bernie Sneed combo. Sneed, the keyboardist from Tommy Chong's group, the Calgary Shades, had moved to Vancouver with Chong and found good work playing the local clubs. The, this combo performed tunes that were jazzier than the R&B music that the Shades played, and the gig provided steady pay for Sneed and his band. A favorite feature in the cabaret was a system of booth-to-booth telephones, a popular uh, gimmick uh, for signals at some nightclubs across North America in the early 1960s, and one that enabled the Berlina patrons to call people at other tables. Vancouverites of a certain age might recall that the Bayside Lounge near Denman and Davie Street maintained a similar phone system until the mid-1980s. But who came calling on March 20th, 1964, was another matter. That Friday night, shortly after closing time, when most of the staff had finished their shifts, six men burst in and ransacked the club in what police called an orgy of destruction, causing more than $7,000 in damage. Two men led the gang, one carried a, carrying a heavy chain and the other a lead pipe. The thugs pushed Berlin manager Donald Trudeau out of the way, telling him, we're not after you, stay out of this. They ripped down two of the uh, booth phones and started destroying the rest of the cabaret. They took to the bandstand, smashing the Hammond organ, electric guitar, and drums before going on to break 100 glasses, 20 glass ashtrays, 10 tables, 15 chairs, and other furnishings, too. To hide from the violent chaos, the Roloffs locked themselves in a washroom along with band members Sneed, Harry Van, and Ross Kearney. It was all over in five minutes. Silence fell over the cabaret and the trembling Berlina staff and musicians emerged from the washroom to find the club destroyed. The police were summoned, and later that night, two thugs that led the attack, Frank Red Gardner, who was 24, and his brother Tony Gardner, 27, were arrested at the Torch Cabaret, just a few blocks away on Howe Street. The Gardner brothers had been living in Vancouver for about a year. Although their declared occupations were quote-unquote salesmen, there was a rumor, pardon me, there was a rumor going around uh, the city there were actually Montreal gangsters who had come west to set up shop. It's not the first time they've been named in a criminal incident. Red Gardner had previous convictions for robbery and drug offenses, and his younger brother for theft, burglary, and possession of a weapon. The ransacking of the Berlina was allegedly connected to an incident that occurred the previous night, when the club's bouncer, Hector Pegararo, had intervened in a fight involving the Gardner brothers. Pegararo himself was a color character. A year earlier, it had been signed as an offensive end with the Calgary Stampeders of the Canadian Football League, but was cut at the end of the season. He started working as a nightclub bouncer. But the fight might have not been the real reason behind the incident. It was talked about in those days that gangsters coming, were coming looking for protection running, and they trashed the place, recalls Tommy Chong. What exactly precipitated the incident remains a mystery, but, what, but the case went to trial and made headlines in the city. Red and Tony Gardner got four years each in jail, with Red getting an additional two years for possession of a dangerous weapon, the heavy chain that he carried that night. Having the Gardner brothers thrown in prison did not calm the waters for everyone at the Berlina Cabaret, though. Hector Pecoraro got into trouble later that year when he had avenged an attack by a woman named Wanda McMillan, who had allegedly thrown a Coca-Cola bottle at Pecoraro's girlfriend. Witnesses said that he stormed into the torch cabaret to find McMillan and slugged her to the floor. When club employees at the torch tried to break up the fight, Pecoraro pulled a loaded handgun from his pocket and threatened them. He got six months in jail and was never welcomed at the torch again. The drama may have been too much for the Broloffs to handle. Before the end of 1964, they simply stopped coming to the cabaret and then just, just, just disappeared. None of the insurance adjusters could find them to deliver the check to cover the ransacking damages. 
He barely any closed in December of 1960 that year, and Pegoraro kept a low profile after he got out of jail, and Gardner's less so. Over the following years, Tony Gardner became a familiar, a familiar rounder at clubs around town, such as the penthouse and the living room. In the late 1960s, the Berlina became the Arthur Murray Dance Studio, the same space that the Gardner brothers and their goons had once destroyed the nightclub in a five-minute ballet of vandalism and violence. Now men and women came to learn the rumba and cha-cha. Eventually, the whole block that once hosed the Berlina was in a shopping mall that opened in 1973. When the Berlina shuttered, its, uh, shuttered and its contents auctioned off, Jim Wisby tried to find a new home for Danceland there, renaming it the Birdland Cabaret. The Birdland lasted less than two months. But Wisby wasn't out of the night, uh, nightclub game yet. He already had a fire going with the torch, which goes on to the next story about the torch cabaret, which is in Banker After Dark. <laughs> Thanks so much, Aaron. That's a great reading to start our conversation with because I have so many questions that tie into that reading um, really perfectly. But I guess one of the things I wanted to start with is that it seems like through the whole book, there's kind of this push and pull and tension between police, government, and the businesses. And I wondered why you thought that was. Why, you know, in the beginning, there was, you know, people were fighting really hard to get these banquet halls and supper clubs open. You know, no one wanted booze and that sort of thing. And it seems like all of their worst fears kind of came to fruition as you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were certainly you know, there were certainly instances of that. I mean, it's a, as a port city, Vancouver has always had, uh, you know, certain elements going on that there have been those stories, but you know, it's difficult for us to look back today on and think of how different, you, you know, going out would have been. I mean, today, you know, you and I might say, of course, COVID now has, has affected, you know, everything and there's less places to go and, and, and shows to see and anything like that. But if you just think back a, f a few months earlier this year, you know, the idea of you, let me say to you, well, let's go out for a drink here after work. And we'll, we'll as late as the 1960s, there wasn't necessarily places to go drink uh, and whatnot. Now there were beer parlors, but you know, they were very different. They, they didn't have a, they didn't have any entertainment. There was no radio allowed that when TV came in, there wasn't allowed to have any TV. You had to, uh, you had to, uh, there was no darts. There was nothing, you had to sit down and drink. You couldn't stand up or belly up to the bar. You had to sit down at a table. Uh, you couldn't sing songs with your friends. If you had maybe some sea chanty, you wanted to sing it while you're having a beer. Or whatnot. So you simply had to sit down and drink. And there was nothing, that, nothing to suggest that, that getting together with friends might be at all pleasurable over a drink or anything like that. There was a, you know, there was, a, there was still a residue of this when I was a kid growing up in Vancouver. You know, you had people like Bernice Gerard. Uh, these people that, that were uh, very religious had worked their way on to city council and these sort of old fathers of the city that were very, you know, very Catholic, you know, in terms of their, their handling of public morals and whatnot is something we don't have today. Um, you had to pursue wickedness, you know, back then you had to go find it, you know, now it's just fingertips away, you know, or, 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 not. or, or all those sort of worries that we had as a society, God, if we let people do this, it'll just mean the end of the world, you know, and whatnot. If we let people uh, be able to, to, you know, it used to be that you, if you wanted to go see a show, you had to go to a theater. Then if you wanted to have a drink, well, you couldn't be at the theater. You had to go to a, a beer parlor for that. Um, and if you got hungry, well, then you'd have to go to, you'd have to go to sort of three different places. As, as early as post-war World War I, people were thinking about, wouldn't it be great to have some, maybe some of all that under one roof, or at least two of those under one roof. So, but, you know, change happens fairly slowly. And, and 
you know, probably even more so in early British Columbia, you know, and when we say early, the province is a young province, of course, but, you know, up when we talk about those, we had prohibition in, in BC, people don't often think of that, you know, it ended fairly quickly, it didn't go as long as it went in the United States, but a lot of, there's been a lot of effort to sort of clamp down activities of citizens over the years, or, or, or saying that things were, you know, it, it's going to be the end of the world if we allow this to happen, you know, and, and um, I think time and time again, what I tried to include in the book is those people that didn't believe that necessarily, and people that wanted to, you know, had an idea for a club or liked a certain kind of music and wanted to feature it there and, and went ahead and did it. And they sometimes under the table sort of fought against, literally sometimes under the table when, when these places were, didn't have liquor licenses. And we're not, again, we're not talking about the 1930s or 40s or 50s. Up until the 19, late 1960s, there weren't liquor licenses in Vancouver. So you had to bring it, you had to smuggle your own, you know, in, in your jacket. And then there'd be teapots all over these tables and people would be, would be pouring the booze into teapots and look like everyone was having a nice tea party. And, and this is what our, you know, our, many cases, our grandparents or some of our parents, you know, back then. And the funny thing is we often look back, I think at, at, at these old days as, Oh, a much more urbane time. And people were so sophisticated. Well, if you know, as well as I do, if you're pouring your own, maybe you're having a, some pretty strong drinks there. So everybody, <laughs> well, everybody's in nice suits in some of these old photographs, half of them must be plastered, you know? So, uh, we have a sort of a genteel look at our, our, our history that way when actually it's quite rife with all sorts of colorful stories and colorful people. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the, the term, the no fun city term, mm-hmm. which I'm sure I know you wrote about in the book and comes out time and time again. And it's a new thing we talk about when we talk about Vancouver. And I wondered what you think about the, that term and whether you think it's true. You know, there are certainly aspects of it that, that at, at times that feel like it's been true. But, you know, I I never believed it, for one. It's important to remember that that whole phrase, no fun city, was invented by the people in the bar and restaurant business that just wanted to sell alcohol a little bit later. Because as Vancouver, especially in the summer, people go out late. They don't go show up in some of these places at 7 or 8 o'clock, especially if it's a night-night out. You know, you're at home, you're on your deck, you're at your patio, you're you're having a good time. And it's only once the sun has maybe fully gone down that you think maybe we should go, go somewhere now. So bar owners realizing that people were going up later and later, especially sort of invented that term because they wanted to stay open till later, you know, and, and this idea uh, of calling the city, no fun city comes from that, you know, there, but you know, there have been times of course, when in our past where it, I, that probably is legitimately true at times, especially with certain, certain things, especially with some of that crowd that, that tried to, um, suppress whether it be liquor sales or noise bylaws with with live music and things like that and there's there's moments of it all the time uh and and the problem is it's just some some of these bylaws are so rooted in stuff that got written in a hundred years ago it would be so much better if they just rewrote these things all together but there are businesses that have adapted and to that now and are, are very rooted i mean you know that even in terms of liquor sales some of the you know the 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 off-license places where you, if you rewrote these, these the places would disappear. It'd probably be better for the city if they did, if they made it, that you could, things more available, less restrictive and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I'm somebody that's born and raised in Vancouver. And I, I guess I'm a, I'm only one of maybe what, three people apparently now. I kept, <laughs> always hear this, that, that oh, you're, you're, I've never met anybody that's born and raised here. As a kid, I knew every, you know, everybody was kind of born and raised here, but I guess people move away and whatnot, but there's, there's still a good number of us. So I, you know, I, I, I know this, I like to think I, the city is not a strange thing to me. I'm not, I'm not, it's always been, 
something that I've known. And when I hear new people come to Vancouver or people that came for a visit, I hear these stories. Well, I, I, you know, I, I went to Vancouver. I lived there for a while. I didn't like it. Everybody was so cold. There was nothing to do. I never, you know, there was never a place to go out. And I, and I, often, I hear these stories. And I think, where the hell did you go? Like, who the hell did you meet? Who were your friends? You know, why didn't you call me? I would have shown you where to go. You know, like I would have told. And that's sometimes Vancouver is a little bit maybe impenetrable at that top surface. But once you get in, gosh, I mean, if I went to half the functions that I'm invited to on, on a weekly basis, I think I need a new liver by the end of it because there's so much going on, not just with live music, and but there's film events and there's there's theater events and there's so many different things, free events going on as well. There's, I can't, I can't go to everything. So it's never been no funny, no fun city to me. You just sometimes needed somebody to take you stuff to say, look, Hardy isn't up on Granville Street. You got to come down here to Gastown tonight. Maybe it's commercial drive on, on, to, on another night. Maybe it is the Granville Street at the, the Orpheum or the Commodore. It's not, you know, those, those, those sort of meat market bars that Granville Street's become. Maybe it's somewhere you haven't been to yet or you don't know about. And sometimes you need a, maybe somebody to help you as a passport get to those places. And I even like to think that the book maybe does that in terms of a time travel thing that, that uh, you know, so many people I know that actually lived that back to said, I, I wish I would have gone because now to read about it, I never went. I, I just didn't think, I just didn't think about it, you know, or, or, or for those, for those people who missed it and other people who did go, you know, tell me that was, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know? So we're, we're a city that, that, that uh, so much is made of the natural beauty of it and the daytime beauty of Vancouver there's been less attention paid to the nighttime of Vancouver. And I really wanted to sort of focus on that. And that's right in the title. of course, too. Yeah, it was, I was, while I was reading the book last night or finishing the last few pages, my husband was looking over the shoulder, my shoulder, and he saw the picture of uh, Green Day at the Cruel Elephant. And he goes, yeah. I, he said, I was at that show. Yeah. And, uh, oh, wow. you know, we both had a few moments where like, you know, we saw the picture of the Smiling Buddha with the, the half pipe in there and we saw a show a few years ago on New Year's Eve there. And so there's lots of moments where you remember being in those places and those are recent oh, memories too. Was it, was, there was, was, it, was it the Hanson Brothers show on New Year's Eve? At the, yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I was at that. Yeah. Oh, really? that. <laughs> oh man. That was, that I think was the last show that Nomi's No as a band played too. I don't know if they did anything after that because then they decided to, to finally pack it in. Yeah. yeah. I was, was sad to, uh, it was sad to see the Buddha go. In fact, it, it felt weird that as soon as the book came out, you know, the Buddha smiling SBC cabaret, the SBA, SBC restaurant, that closed. Yeah. You know, so it almost felt, you know, like, well, the book is going to have a little bit of shelf life to it, but no sooner was it finished that one more, you know, nightclub, night spot disappeared in Vancouver. Yeah. 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 Um, I wanted to ask about your first Vancouver nightlife experiences and what you remember from going out maybe when you were could legally drink or illegally drink. Uh, uh, you <laughs> a great point. You bring up a great point. But a lot of people went out with, you know, fake ID used to, I don't know if this is the same thing in other cities. I presume it is. But there's something special about people getting fake ID in Vancouver. That, that, uh, uh, legions of my friends did it or or they borrowed their older brothers or older sister's ID to go out. I didn't, I had an older yeah. brother, but I didn't, he was so much older than me uh, that, that I, I didn't look like, and it didn't look like him, you know, like, so it's, uh, I, I never did it. I waited dutifully, uh, like the <laughs> Carisdale boy that I was, uh, up until I was 19 to go out. And I missed so many shows. I missed, you know, there was especially there were a bunch of sort of British bands that sort of came through, you know, Vancouver only once. And I, I was like six months before I turned or, you know, 19 or to get in. And I missed, I just, I rue the day to day. I see old listings for it. And I think, God, I would have gone to that in a minute, you know? So 
the first place I would have gone to, I gosh, I can't remember necessarily what where that was. It was probably some small place. I do remember, you know, first going to the Commodore Ballroom, and this would have been 1990, 91, I guess, 90, and uh, just to see local some local bands play, you know, one of those sort of great sort of five bands for five bucks uh, nights that they used to have there then. That uh, I wish they probably could have again today. That uh, so it was probably something like that. Um, I, I was I was going to see bands at the time. I wasn't necessarily I wasn't really not like going to sort of places that were just sort of DJ rooms or, or you know whatnot. I went to them with my friends and kind of sulked in the corner saying, "Is there some band play?" <laughs> but then I'd be much, much better. <laughs> you know, I was kind of a live music and and I got into playing in the bands really from that. You know, and I did that for you know the next sort of twenty years of my life for all intents and purposes as a touring musician. So that was kind of just what I was looking for. You know, back then and and. You know, the Town Pump and the Railway Club back in those days were, were places that I was at all the time. And the Cruel Elephant uh, and some of the places I listened to it got into the book, which was a fun part of it for me. Because sometimes as a historian, you're, you're looking back at places that were around before you were around. So you're relying on other people's memories and, 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 and for some verification things. But with this, uh, you know, and probably with the Commodore book as well, to a certain degree, I was able to sort of mine my own memories of some of these places and how they sort of fit into the hierarchy of uh, the entertainment scene at the time. And that, so that was kind of fun to, to take a, a, a time traveling in my own mind in that regard. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about why you're so passionate about history and how you became a historian. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, educationally speaking, I did take, you know, history in college and university uh, as well as some other things. I, I, I moved around a little bit that they were, I kept getting this, this mail from UBC saying uh, they wanted me to declare a major and, and it could quit sort of, uh, you know, trying to be a dilettante and, and, and whatnot. So I, 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 I did take that in, in school, but I, I, uh, I thought I would also get into film and TV sort of related things, you know, so I went to film school uh, as well. But um, history was always an interest, but, I, and it was, but it wasn't an interest when I was a kid necessarily. It was only until my, I got into my 20s and perhaps my later 20s, I think, that some of the changes in Vancouver itself started to affect me, that, that I, you, you start to get old enough that you remember, uh, you know, you, your, your childhood isn't just a childhood anymore. It's also, you think back, well, that was the 1970s for me. Uh, you know, I'm born in 1971. So I remember Vancouver before Expo. It was my early teens. It was my childhood. I remember seeing log booms in False Creek. I remember the, being industry down there where there's now, you know, condo towers in Yaletown. So after a while, when you start to notice, when I would take off on tour as a musician, you'd take off from the city and you'd come back to home two months, three months, four months later, five months later at, at, at times. The bookstore on the corner is now a pizza place. Uh, this, this one store, it's always, it never goes the other way. The pizza place never becomes the bookstore, unfortunately. It's always the other way around. Um, but uh, you start to remember, well, that store used to be there, now it's gone. And, and, and my friends and I started to do this as well, especially as we got into our 30s, we, were, we would talk about seeing some shows at the Hungry Eye or, or seeing some shows at the Town Pump and these places and whatnot. And we, I, I stopped this one, one sort of conversation we had at a coffee shop one day. And I said, we're talking like a bunch of 80 year old men about our old, you know, this is only 15, 20 years ago uh, in the city. But we re- it made me also realize that something unique was happening here in Vancouver. And when I do other, you know, sometimes when I do a book event or read something in, in like someplace like Edmonton, for instance, some people come up to me afterwards and say, it's really interesting because nobody is doing this here in Edmonton. You know, why, why is it in Vancouver? And, and it got me thinking as well that, you know, there are some cities that, that haven't changed as quickly as Vancouver has. Every city is going to change. And we shouldn't expect all cities to be a museum. 
a lot of the places in, in Vancouver After Dark should have only been there for a few years. It would be weird to, you know, I don't know if they, they, things are supposed to change. You know, some places, thank God, are still there, like the Commodore and the Orpheum and things like that. But, you know, some places, maybe like Love Affair, only should exist in a place in time. I don't know if it would be great if it was today, if it was somehow could be relevant today. But, you know, the music's changed and culture's changed. So there's a reason why these places only exist in time for a little bit. So as I began to get just a little bit older, I, I, I started to think, you know, because I was fortunate enough to be born and raised here and I have those memories, I was able to draw my own my own thoughts and my own memories of, as why the city had changed or how it had changed or what were the little benchmarks. You know, I can remember certain areas of town smelling differently because of the industry that was different. It was in them, you know, like, and I'll, I thought that was, it, it, it interests me, but it also thought if I could use this and, to, and be able to tell some stories the same way with that, I thought that would be interesting. And, and another big part of it just simply had to do with the fact that uh, I'd always been interested in how, people told stories, but made them relevant to where they lived. Um, I remember this interview, uh, oddly enough, I think it was in Premier Magazine. I probably got it on the wall back there somewhere in an old clipping uh, of, of Harvey Keitel, the actor, and Martin Scorsese talking about, you know, making stories and movies and acting in New York and, their, and what they built, what they, you know, kind of built there, them and their many other colleagues there. And, to, and they were saying, you know, to us, this is just where we lived. It didn't matter that it was New York. You know, obviously it's a big city and it's one of those sort of big cities in the world that always gets referenced and compared. You know, there's London, New York, Japan, uh, Tokyo. Uh, you know, there's, there's a few cities around the world that are that Paris, you know, that have these things that we, that are, that are the world-class cities, you know, that we, we like to call Vancouver. I don't know if that's the case necessarily. Not. We're doing, we're on our way up, at least with some of the housing prices, God knows. But <laughs> But, you know, that, that sort of also a, a penny dropped and I thought, yeah, you can, you know, you, if you can find a story where you live or where you are, you know, that, that is interesting or could be told or hasn't been told properly in your mind. And you can research some of these things as well as feed your own memories into, into things. That, that was also, that kind of piqued my interest. And, and there, there was a lot of music in my, in my 20s, some of the music that I was playing as well that, that I got into that was that had to do a little bit with that, you know, and, and I tried to apply some of those, some of those thoughts. So it, 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 it's something that kind of fed itself for, for a long while before I probably, re, you know, started, uh, I'd always, I started writing some of the pieces for the Vancouver Courier and doing some sort of journalism things in the beginning, you know, that, that told, uh, uh, that had a city history element to it, especially if a business, longtime business was closing, you know, or a theater was, was, uh, was, was ending. It's, it's, you know, I, I, that it all sort of started to feed itself, you know, in, in one thing or another. So. I think one thing that I was thinking about a lot as I was reading was that we, you know, people, the business owners and government sell everyone on progress, like change in their mind changes progress. But there's also the part of, you know, us, the people who go out and enjoy the nightlife, we see it, we lament this progress we see change and it was interesting for me reading it because I remember when Richards on Richards was closed and then demolished and my heart broke but in reading the book you kind of see that this has been this had been happening for for decades and this was not really new it's just kind of the changing landscape of the city and so I was curious just like you know how you were thinking about that, if you kind of, that, that kind of duality in languages between, you know, this, the city talking about progress, but then the people wanting in some way, like you said, for things to stay the same. Yeah, I think very much so. Uh, you know, and, and 
you know, what's interesting, you, you, you mentioned Richards on Richards, you know, a famous Richards Street Night Club. Now, somebody, uh, uh, you're, you're closer in, in, to age in, in me than necessarily somebody who went to Richards in the 1980s when it was the real sort of yuppie place in town because there are still people in town that would talk about Richards on Richards. I wouldn't go there, you know, as, and, and I would tell them, you know, it's changed, you know, you know, you know, it's not what it used to be. It's a great, it was a great live music room, you know, to see bands. Yeah. Uh, there. I played there a couple of times myself, uh, but saw a lot of shows there and some great acts, especially a lot of national sort of British and Australian acts that came through there. But it, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned something sort of interesting that in, in that sense that, uh, you know, everybody tends to look back at the period between 20 and 40, from my best guess, as the greatest time to be alive. <laughs> and we think that the clubs that were around then were the, were the best ever and the people before it the generation before never got to see it and, and the, and the, the kids that came afterwards never got to see it out and never had it, you know, they never had it as good as we did. And everybody else after that missed out. And you hear that time and time again. And from people, if you, you, you read what they've written or have a chance to interview them over the 20th century, you know, there's a, there's a sort of strong belief that, you know, music was never as good as it was then. And I saw the best up, you know, and now some people, you know, there, there's a period of popular music, which is pretty great era music in the 70s and 80s, you know, even the 90s, I think, too, that, that maybe that's a little bit true, depending on if you're talking about certain kinds of certain kinds of music and, and certain kinds of shows and whatnot. But we have this tendency to look back at that time as the best time ever. And the one thing about glory days is they move with every generation. Every generation has them, uh, you know, and in, in, in as much as we, you know, you find people today who would say, so maybe some, an older person maybe in there. 60s or 70s would look at says of the city now oh vancouver's terrible now it was great in the in the, in the 60s and 70s well i can guarantee you if we were to take a time machine to go back to the 1960s we could find somebody who lived in vancouver in the 1930s that would say in the 1950s well this city's crap now it was way better in the 1930s so you know as i say that's a moving target all the time and that, and that is kind of a fascinating principle you know that that uh, uh, especially when we talk about popular history and, 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 the, and the kind of stuff that I've written about in that and, and, and cultural history, because it moves and changes so much. So, you know, I, I, which is the reason why today that when people say, Oh, the, uh, there's no good nightclubs anymore. There's no, all that's gone. That I can guarantee you, you know, once all this COVID mess is over, there'll be some 21, if we can let's flash forward to get the next year around this time, uh, when hopefully all this is gone, we'll pray and hope and uh, that science has, has figured all this out. There'll be some 21-year-old kid going on, and he was gonna—he's gonna have the best time as you did when you were 21. It's just the music's different, the places are different. Sometimes the clubs move around to different parts of the city too. You know, when it, you know, as I talked about Hornby Street, of all places, Hornby. Why do we go to Hornby? That used to be where all the clubs were. You know, now they're kind of all on, pushed on Granville. So it's a changing thing. Our own our own memories. You know, where these locations are—they're all different in that in that in that regard. And that kind of sometimes makes it hard to pin down in terms of telling a story and whatnot. But uh, I still think that, that there, there's fun to be had. I still think that there's, there's good places out there. You know, they, they may have changed. They're not necessarily a place for, you know, somebody like myself who's now, you know, in their late forties is I wouldn't go to hang out in a place that, that's maybe for their, you know, early twenties. It reminds me of an old Chris Rock routine where you're like, you don't want to be the oldest person in the club <laughs> and whatnot. You know? But, uh, but you know, there's still, there's still things out there. It's just things that have changed is all. And, and there's still, there's still lots of viable fun to be had, you know? So, yeah. 
I wanted to, uh, one of my last questions for you was around uh, the characters you found to kind of bring the story to life. Because as much as it's a story about places and Vancouver yes. and it, it was really the people who made them come to life. And some of the people that I wrote down were like Mildred Henderson and Tommy Chong, of course, yeah. and Les Stork. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those characters and how you went about finding them. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, why I think this is important, why the book I, I think is important, you know, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it goes through certain memories of Vancouver nightlife that maybe any generation can smile about because, you know, ourselves, our, our, our parents, our grandparents all have one place in Vancouver they like to have gone to that's gone now. There's, some, there's a thread that runs through our, our, our families that, that way. You know, in as much as it's, it's what's really interesting about it, it's where we as Vancouverites met. It is interesting, some of the big name entertainers that came through and played and performed in some of these places. That's equally fascinating to me. But it's where these are places where we, as, as, as Canadians, as British Columbians, as Vancouverites, went and met one another. So that's why they have more significance than just, you know, who was on the, on the playbill, who was on the marquee. You know, there are lots of different things. When you're, when you're putting a book together like this, uh, you sometimes have to choose to, you know, spotlight some narratives more than others, you know. And... and you know, some people ask me, you know, you didn't have as many music reviews or, or reviews from certain shows, you know, and, and I thought, well, you know, those have, those have been written to a certain extent and, and they can be accessed and found if you want to dig those out in any kind of, you know, newspaper archive. But what hadn't been, in my mind, so spotlighted or, or so featured were some of the people that worked in these places or ran them, you know, or, or helped create and set the table for us to enjoy and, and those names you mentioned, I mean, Mildred Henderson, her grandson was a friend of mine. And we were talking one time and he said, oh, my, my grandmother has the floor of dance land in her home. And I, and I did a double take. And I said, what? So, you know, I went out and interviewed her and, and, uh, and there was, you know, there was, and she it used to have parties. And so it was great. It was a great story in that sense. It's, it's, it's detailed in the book. She's since passed away now. She, I think, lived about 94 or something, but she was still active up until her, her very last days. Um, so great story. Les Stork, one of the most fascinating characters in Vancouver nightclub history, who founds the bunkhouse down on Davy Street. The building is still there, just down by, used to be the Atlantic Trap and Guild, if you remember that place in the 90s. But uh, Stork ran this club. They had some pretty good acts play there as well. It was a very small kind of intimate place, but gets involved in sort of national, uh, you know, in, in drug trafficking on a national scale uh, so that he gets arrested a couple times for it. Very sort of wild character uh, in, in that sense. You know, so there were lots of different people, you know, the people that, uh, you know, uh, ran Oil Can Harry's and the people that ran uh, all these clubs over the years, Ronnie's River Queen, you know, uh, each have this really interesting story about how how it came together for them. And um, even if some of these clubs really only lasted a dozen years, half a dozen years in some cases, <clears throat> they really contributed to the, the history of the city in that sense. Thanks so much to Aaron for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for listening, subscribing, and sharing these episodes. If you want to hear more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. And if you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Alejandro Freed, author of Changing Tides, An Ecologist's Journey to Make Peace with the Anthropocene. 
Changing Tides won the Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.